Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 157. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us cycle around once again to another exciting um, time in our lives, in our spiritual community. We've just uh, completed our uh, fall festivals. Our celebrations are behind us. Uh, we're, we're on a brand new um, Torah reading cycle, starting with the book of Genesis again. Um, and we're excited to um, see what you're going to be doing afresh for us as a spiritual community. Of course, we go through these cycles year after year. You know, we cycle around uh, starting, ending, and things like that. But we are assured that you are a God who never changes. Um, Indeed, your mercies are renewed every morning, but on the other hand, um, you are a God who is constant uh, in your mercy. And so we thank you that uh, despite all the changes that um, life brings us, some of them good, some of them bad, um, we can nevertheless count on you to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we celebrate you, Yeshua. We glorify you and we magnify your name. We lift you up. We say, come into this place, Holy Spirit, and help us to have a productive study. Help us to uh, realize uh, the importance of having you as our God um, and to know the, 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 the power of the Messiah, uh, to know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to share with uh, everyone around the world. Even though many of us are still um, suffering the, the ill effects of COVID, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Beth El Gibor at the moment, whose community is... Um, uh, just having to uh, uh, weather the storm at the moment, uh, canceled uh, services because of COVID uh, this week, uh, maybe last week also, but this week. Uh, we pray for uh, the congregants there, the leadership and the members, and we pray that you'll continue to strengthen them and um, keep them in your arms. Uh, heal them and raise them up and help them to continue to be a voice in this uh, dark world. Um, Help us, Lord, as we continue to uh, uh, expect um, that things are going to get worse and worse as we approach your second coming, yet at the same time, we will never lose hope as long as we're anchored in you and as our eyes are focused on you and we've got our mind set on the things that are, are important to Messiah. Let's have the same mind in us that it was in Messiah, Paul said. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. So let's have the mind of Messiah and we will continue to be able to 
um, make it through no matter what uh, comes our way. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. This is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunuva, the Harvest Congregation, like you can see on my screen. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We are um, having uh, in-person services, but we're also uh, recording everything, as you can see. I'm scrolling up and down throughout the the webpage. Um, From the Tabernacle to Bethlehem, Part 2. Mark's still working his way through the sermon um, that he started during the festivals, talking about uh, Yeshua being born and brought into the world. And he is the... He is the ultimate expression of God dwelling with us. Remember what Moshe wrote in Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them build me a tabernacle so that I may dwell among them. And um, the idea there is that God wants to dwell with his people. And so we see that the fullness of this took place the fullest expression of that took place when Messiah came to earth and was Emmanuel, God with us. And yet there's still a future dwelling that God is going to bring his very presence himself, not in the second person of the Trinity presence, but first person, God the Father, is going to still dwell with his people. That's still something future, and we pray for that um, event to come soon. I've also got my own Torah teaching website at tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. You can find me online there. Um, Bump that up a little bit so it looks just a little bigger. No, too big. Let's try. There we go. 200. That works for me. Um, uh, From the home screen, like you can see on my screen, just click on any of the links. I hardly ever scroll down up and down through the video uh, through my homepage so you can see what some of the um, uh, sections look like. But I've got weekly Torah portions. Uh, Holy Convocations, uh, iTunes podcasts, YouTube videos, uh, questions and answers, uh, Shomer Mitzvot, which is Torah Observant uh, series, Galatians Commentary, the orange one, and then hit the button all the way back top. So I'd love it if you visit my website and uh, avail yourself of all the resources that are available there, both written, audio, and video. Speaking of video... Why don't you check out my YouTube channel when you get a chance? You can find me online at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetzay Torah Ministries. And from the homepage or from the videos page, you can see that I'm quite the busy busy beaver uploading new content every day. My latest video is the um, part five of my Let Us Make Man in Our Image. Who is God talking with in Genesis 1.26? Is he talking with the angels? I did a a follow-up video to that this week, five-part series. I also uploaded the interview with Rabbi Mark Schulman of Messianic Congregation um, Bethel Gibor. As I mentioned earlier, that was uploaded just yesterday, the full hour-long show. Um, And you can watch that interview with Rabbi Mark if you'd like. That would be great. Do these five things for me real quick if you do visit my YouTube channel. Number one, subscribe and join the family. Number two, hit the bell for notifications so that you are in the loop when I do upload new content. Number three, leave the um, thumbs up. Let me know that you like the content uh, or thumbs down if you don't like it, but at least number four, leave me a comment and tell me why you gave me a thumbs down or tell me why you disagree with what I am um, uh, presenting. And then number five, hit the little share button to share the content with your friends and family, member, family members in your social media loops. 
These are the live internet studies brought to you every week, every Saturday late afternoon from um, uh, 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Let me give you the details on the uh, show today. This is episode number 157, as I mentioned earlier. Recording date is October 2nd, 2021, the USA date. Saturday afternoons, every time, every Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. is when we meet. Two 30-minute segments. First 30-minute segment is Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my, part 73 tonight is what we're going to watch, or what we're going to study. Um, Segment two is Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity, paper three, Who or What is the Holy Spirit, part 89. We missed last week because of the the interview, so we're going to pick up tonight. And then um, the the, uh, video that we're going to watch is related to uh, the, the tag end of the festivals, um, Shmini Atzeret, or Eighth Day of Assembly, also known as Simchat Torah, Rejoicing in the Torah, is um, the time period that we celebrated at the very end of the fall festivals. Um, that was just uh, earlier in the, uh, this week. So we're going to watch a video related to that. Highlights from the Holy Convocation Studies, Shmini Atzeret, the Eighth Day of Assembly. Just some real brief important details. If you'd like to join us week after week live, you will need access to Skype somehow. If you're on a desktop or a laptop computer, the easiest way is to go to this webpage that you see right now, tatesetorah.com, my website. Click on the banner at the very top that says Live Internet Studies. Scroll about halfway down into the page. Click the blue Skype banner. And if we're during the live study like we are right now, if you click the blue link, It'll connect you to Skype as a guest. That's the easiest way to join. We'd love to have you join us week after week um, so that you can uh, join us with the live chat that takes place after each Skype study. It's exclusive to the live chat afterwards. It's not recorded or uploaded anywhere. So if you want to chit-chat with the other students or ask questions of myself as the moderator, the teacher, um, this is the way to go about it. And then one last um, uh, detail I'd like to share with you. When you're on my website at tatesatorah.com, take a moment to scroll all the way to the very bottom to the black footer section where you can see some Hebrew writing and that yellow donate button. If the Lord is laying it on your heart to bless me financially, this is the way to do it. I could sure use the help during this difficult time in my life, still looking for employment, but I'm trusting that God is going to help me no matter what. So um, you guys are partners with Hashem in blessing me and helping me to, to bring content like this to you. Um, so uh, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's jump into the Romans uh, 14 study. Um, we're in the section uh, section 15, how can we make for peace and for mutual upbuilding? And the verse that we're working from by way of um, study uh, context is verse 19, Romans 14, 19. Paul says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And we've already determined that this is not really an option. This is not something that Paul's saying, you know what, if you Jews and Gentiles and Messiah have some time, some spare time, if it's not too much trouble, if it's not going to disrupt your services or anything, can you guys learn how to get along with each other? But if not, you know, I understand, understand you guys have your differences. Nope. That doesn't seem to be the way um, Paul is writing this part of his letter. He is actually commanding them to pursue, um, to, to make this a point of of a community dyma- dynamic. Obviously, at this part in his letter, he's very concerned about the infighting that he's been hearing. Remember, Paul wrote this letter from outside of Rome, right? He has never even been uh, in Rome, as far as we know, and therefore he's writing the letter based on probably you know, correspondence letters from Priscilla and Aquila uh, to him 
uh, way over in Corinth or something like that. Or maybe when... Um, uh, the Jews got kicked out of Rome, uh, uh, you know, a few years earlier because of the uh, decree from Emperor Claudius, and uh, Priscilla and Aquila got scooped up in that uh, exile, uh, that that um, uh, you know, being kicked out. Maybe they visited Paul over in Corinth. I think that's what's happened. That's most what most historians say. So they visited Paul and they probably told him about what's going on. Uh, you know, there's a lot of fighting going on. Jews and Gentiles fighting over holy days and and food and kosher preferences and and what's clean and what's unclean. And Paul's like, all right, let me put together a letter and and, and uh, uh, have it sent out. So um, Paul tells them there that they have to make this a priority. Uh, let's read the Greek real quick, and then we'll study this through the lens of another letter that he wrote, which is the book of Ephesians, which captures, I think, the heart of Paul. He doesn't really change very much from letter to letter. He, he writes about different topics per whatever the Holy Spirit is laying on his heart for that community, but the overall bedrock foundation of what he's teaching um, is going to remain the same, how that we are unified in Messiah, we're forgiven of our sins in Jesus, uh, we've got a new identity in God as children of God, and that we're forgiven, and that... Um, we're filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit and things like that. All of those are foundational truths that Paul's going to communicate no matter what letter or community he's writing to. And so we're going to borrow his notes from Ephesians and overlay them on top of the book of Romans. Uh, we can do that from our vantage point, although they probably couldn't uh, do that in, in his day, at least not easily, uh, having both letters and juggling them and looking at them and examining them like we can do today. But we're going to use Ephesians chapter 2 to show what I believe is the heart of what Paul's trying to get at when he's um, commanding them to pursue what makes for peace. What is it that makes for peace? How can they? Is this human effort? Let me just tell you up front. Is it human effort that Paul's expecting is going to make for peace and mutual building? Or is there something more, something stronger, something more um, um, secure uh, that Paul's expecting is going that the, the, um, um, the congregants there at Rome are going to have to do in order to uh, make sure that, that their communities enjoy this peace? I think that Paul is appealing to the presence of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the communities, and that they need to come back to their first priorities of making Yeshua first, making Him the priority, and um, making the Holy Spirit's presence in their midst a priority. Um, in, in other words, nothing short of revival is going to um, help keep them in a place where they are a strong community and not fighting with one another. The same message is true for us today in the watered-down uh church of the 21st century we need a, a, a we need a, a visitation from the holy spirit we need revival right and it's only by returning to our first love uh yeshua that we're going to accomplish that it's not our all it's not our clever political uh, and social programs our 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 um fancy sunday school uh programs our our clever uh, deacons meetings are, are, are clever, um, um, you know, remodeling of the church or whatever. Um, none, all of those things are important, but none of that's really going to, um, um, how should we say, push back uh, significantly against the uh, the blindness and the, the bitterness and the judgmental attitudes that that and the and the darkness that has um, uh, crept into churches these days. So, uh, the Greek, by the way, real quick says "ara un tates eirenes diokumen kai tates oikodomes tates ace alelus." All right, let's scroll down into the notes and drop all the way down to the. Um, 
uh, the uh, verse from uh, Ephesians. Let me read that real quick. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 and 16. Paul says in that letter, for he himself, speaking of Yeshua, he himself is our peace. There's the answer right there, people. The answer right there is recognizing who the Prince of Peace is and giving him the preeminence and the due place of honor in our communities. Let's stop focusing on what makes us upset with our neighbor. Stop looking at each other and start looking at our, at the Lord. Let's start looking at Messiah. Get our eyes f- focused on Jesus, and that's going to bring the lasting peace. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We mentioned last week in my watching the video that the one, the, the, the us, is Jew and Gentile in Paul's day, the, the heavy distinction between the existing um, people group of God, the um, the family of Abraham at the natural level, the Jews, and then bring in the grafted-in family of Abraham, the wild olive tree, uh, the Gentiles, those from the nations, those who are far off and now being brought near. These are the us. Um, he's made us both one, Jew and Gentile. And and. Continuing in his letter, Yeshua broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this sounds on the surface level like he absolutely flattened the law of Moses in order to bring about um, this peace, in order to um, bring the two groups together. He destroyed the law of Moses. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. But our translations trip us up. I'm going to read the Greek tonight, and um, the context of the whole letter that you can't see always in the Greek or even in a translation is that Paul's not saying that the law has to be destroyed or dismantled or moved out of the way in order for the two groups to be brought back together. What needs to happen is we need to get our eyes focused on the fact that we're all broken and in need of Messiah, and therefore, in the place where of our brokenness, God sends his Son, he sends his Holy Spirit to accomplish the unity that we ourselves can't accomplish. And Paul says this in the, in the remaining um, verses, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Notice it's Yeshua doing the work. He is the one. What did he say in? Um, what did he say to the disciples? Um, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm the one building my church. You guys aren't the ones who are going to build it. I'm the one who's going to build it. Of course, the foundation is upon me, myself, I'm Yeshua speaking. I'm the foundation. I'm the cornerstone. I'm that rock which the church is built upon. This is the same thing that Paul's expressing here. He, Yeshua, might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Not It's not our own social programs that's going to create the one new man. It's not our slick Sunday school uh, uh, programs or our, like I mentioned in my prayer earlier or whatever earlier, um, you know, our, our, our fancy deacon programs and, and men's prayer groups and, and Bible studies. As important as all of those are and necessary to every uh, church community, you know, our, syna- our, our synagogues, our messianic synagogues, and our own eggs and, and our get togethers, our potlucks, as important as all of those things are, it really is getting back to the basics of understanding the foundations of our faith that it is Yeshua who creates in himself this one new man in place of the two. We've got to get our eyes off looking at each other's faults and failures and shortcomings and get our eyes on Yeshua. 
allow the Holy Spirit to move in and amongst our communities. He is the one who makes peace, uh, Paul says in Ephesians. And this is the peace that the Roman communities need. And then verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby doing what? Killing or destroying the force of the Greek word there, destroying the ethron, the hostility. So we'll read the Greek here in my liturgy. That's Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, through from the ESV with the emphasis being made by myself. All right, so we've got this excursus. Uh, on Ephesians 2.15, Jesus broke down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. How are we to understand this breakdown? Um, I'm going to play a video a little bit later um, in the show. It's not the same video I played last week, but it is the same um, material. It's the same um, uh, uh, source. It's the same uh, passage in the Bible. Um, you see, it's a short commentary. It's shorter than the previous one I played last week, um, but it's a summary version of, of this particular uh, study. Um, I say in my commentary, I'm just going to read down through this, and I, I'm going to read without stopping, and so um, you should be able to catch the force of it. It's commonly taught that the dividing wall of hostility being broken down was the law of Moses, the Torah. In my study and teaching of the Bible, I firmly maintain that the barrier being destroyed cannot possibly be the Torah because the Torah never commanded a dividing wall of hostility uh, between Jews and Gentiles. Understand what I mean there? The Torah doesn't tell Jews and Gentiles to separate so that there can, um, so we can foster this hostility. The dividing wall of hostility is a phrase that needs to be captured to its fullest extent. The hostility between Jews and Gentiles that was existing in Paul's day was so strong that Paul could describe it being destroyed by Messiah as something of an ideal, of a pro like a program, like a um, almost like a policy. And indeed, it was strengthened by the um, animosity between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day, particularly along the religious lines of, you know, we're the chosen and you're not, speaking from the Jewish vantage point. We are God's chosen people and you guys, you Gentiles, you guys are just clueless. And so the only way that we can help you guys out is for us to um, expunge you or ex expel the evil uh, Gentile element, um, change your ethnicity, you know, wash you clean of all that filth that you, you know, the baggage that you carry as Gentiles. This is still speaking like religious Jews, so don't get offended. Um, I'm not, I don't think this myself. It's just the way religious Jews uh, kind of viewed uh, Gentiles in the first century. Um, there's this filth that comes along with the, you know, the paganism of Gentile uh, lifestyle, and we can't allow that into our religious community, so we're just going to have to wash all that away at the door, but that includes your identity as, as ethnic Jews. Jews. Um, just do the right thing, convert, become Jewish, and um, you'll be seen as acceptable in God's sight. Well, that's not the right way to um, uh, solve the issue, the 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 um, enmity, uh, you know, the wall of hostility. That's not going to solve anything. Um, Paul realizes that it's only a change of heart. It's only a change of person. It's only the Lord himself, Yeshua, the Messiah, uh, sending his Holy Spirit within us that's going to be able to break down this barrier, destroy the wall of hostility, and allow the one new man to be birthed. So um, it is true, I say in my commentary, that Israel was singled out by God to be a nation separated unto himself. And I've got some references there. So there is supposed to be a separation from the profane, but the separation's not really to be equated with a separation from the Gentiles part and parcel. Yes, husband and wife should be separated unto one another, and that's the paradigm. And I say that in my uh, 
commentary. This separation is the paradigm presented to demonstrate the basis for a unique covenant relationship in which the husband, God, would love and cherish his bride, Israel, with a unique love not intended for other women. That's the paradigm. That's the picture. That's the, the model that is given for us in the Tanakh. That's why Israel was to be separated from the world and unto God, separated for the purpose of covenant relationship. But this doesn't mean that she is um, not to interact with Gentiles, right? She's in the world, but not of the world. Um, the same way with the Christians are in the world, but not of the world. That's the, the paradigm. Israel is the paradigm for the church. And indeed, the church is grafted into the family known as Israel. And we pick up that same um, mandate of being in the world, but not of the world, like Yeshua uh, challenged us with. So that's what's going on. Jews and Gentiles should not be separated from one, from one another in our communities, at least from Paul's perspective. To the degree that Gentiles represent um, pagan pageantry, then yes, we need to separate from paganism. But that doesn't mean separating from our neighbors um, whom we, who we're supposed to be reaching out with in love. In my commentary, I continue this way. Moreover, this separation did not forbid those from the nations, the Gentiles, from attaching themselves to Israel, to her God, and thus by covenant to Israel's Torah. We've got a, a bevy of passages there. In fact, um, we read in Isaiah uh, that the coastlands, the Gentiles, would be eagerly waiting for the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, to bring this law to them. Understand what I mean there? The Gentiles are actually going to be waiting for the Lord himself to bring this law. What law do you think Isaiah was referring to? Well, at the time of his writing, there's only really one law of the Lord that was in, in focus, and that was the law of, of, of uh, Moses, the law that God had handed to Israel and expected her to safeguard and to follow. So it makes sense that, that um, Isaiah would be referring to the servant of the Lord, which we know is Yeshua, to bring this law, which was the Torah, to the Gentiles as well. And this fits perfectly with the idea of Yeshua saying in Matthew 5, starting in verse 17, that he didn't come to do away with the law of God, the law of Moses, but rather to strengthen it by fulfilling it, by bringing it to its fullest and, and proper understanding and application and consequently um, installment or uh, application among the people. The interpretation was, was fractured and, and broken and marred and destroyed and, and, and um, so perverted in, Paul, in, in Yeshua's day and Paul's day that it took the Messiah himself, the very Son of God, to open the eyes of the blinded leaders of Israel and help them see how tradition was blinding them, how the, the extra fences and the, all of the, the man-made dogmas and, and doctrines and policies and halakha, group policy, was clouding the very pure word of God. Uh, it was keeping the people from being able to actually walk into the pure milk of the word. They couldn't even read it for themselves and understand it anymore because of all of the man-made traditions that had been built up the fences upon fences of fences that had been established and, and um, built up around the Torah. You couldn't even see the, 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 um, the true Torah anymore. All you saw was the man-made policies. This is the what we're talking about, the oral traditions, the oral Torah. This is the wall of hostility 
that was built up in Paul's day. All of the man-made traditions that separated Jew from Gentile and Gentile from Jew and um, made sure that the two didn't um, contact one another so that they didn't, uh, quote-unquote, um, pollute one another with their with their um, uncleanness, right? The very topic we're reading about in Romans 14. Let's continue. So Jew and Gentile coming together under one identifier called Israel is, I say clearly shown in the stock, but it's really not so clear given the fact that Israel's blindness was a spiritual blindness that hid her uh, that that hid the presence of the Gentiles from her. She couldn't see how the Gentiles uh, fit into her communities as Israelites, as Jews. She didn't understand, and this was part of God's program, that God was using the blindness of Israel to bring the Gentiles into the family of Abraham. This is part of the mystery of the gospel that Paul's going to go on to explain later on in the book of Ephesians probably around chapters 5 and 6, where he talks about the mystery of the gospel. But this is what he's building up to in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And this is also shown in the book of Romans and also shown in the book of Galatians. So I say in my commentary, so if the Torah itself cannot be the dividing wall, what was it? Well, whatever it was, it created the enmity, the hostility, the Greek is ekthron, that was mentioned in both Ephesians 2.15 and Ephesians 2.16. So I go on to say in my commentary, by the first century, it's obvious that Jews outnumber Gentiles in national Israel. But it wouldn't be short, it wouldn't be too much longer before the Gentiles actually outnumbered the Jews in the communities. And indeed, Gentile Christianity picked up and uh, ran with uh, the community building concept. And thus, the Gentile Christian churches were kind of birthed uh, starting from the first century. And thus, now we have uh, most communities in the world today that are Christian are predominantly Gentile. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is still part of the program of God, but it just highlights the fact that Jews are in a place where it's very difficult for them to see their own place in God's um, uh, plans, uh, especially with the large presence of the Gentiles, um, without creating what's called the other. So if you ask your average Jew, um, are you God's chosen? Well, most religious Jews are going to answer in the affirmative. Many secular Jews are also going to say, yeah, we believe we're still God's chosen people. If you then follow up with your question of how does the church fit into your understanding of your place as being special with God as a Jew, they're going to probably respond that, well, the Gentile church, you know, that that's them. Notice my othering terminology. Others. The Gentile church, they're the other people, right? They're not part of us. But Paul wouldn't agree with that mindset. Israel is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And so the church is, in Paul's mindset, part of remnant Israel. Thus, they're part of Abraham's family. And the Jewish people need to see through that blindness and the Gentiles need to as well. So I say in my commentary, but more importantly, Jewish Israel forgot in Paul's day that Gentiles in Israel were to be counted as equal covenant members, and instead they had imposed this man-made proselyte ceremony upon them if new prospects wished to join Israel. They were micromanaging the immigration policies into Israel. That's what was going on. If you want to be counted among the righteous 
religious Israel said to uh, Gentiles in that day, if you want to be counted as righteous in God's eyes and in our programs, you need to, you Gentiles, need to change your ethnicity. We've got a program for you. It's not in the Torah. We've created it ourselves, and it involves sacrifice. It involves um, a mikvah, which is like a baptism. It involves bringing uh, some money. Um, it involves circumcision for men, male circumcision, Um and so those were the steps that were being taken by uh, Gentiles to join Israel. Not everybody was undergoing that, um, but some people did. Um, people who stopped short of physical circumcision, that is males, um, but still wanted to support the Jewish communities were known as um, God-fearers. It was kind of a technical term, like uh, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Uh, God-fearers, people who supported the Jewish communities, uh, gave monies to the synagogue, um, and um, did their best to follow whatever parts of Torah the Jewish people were allowing them to keep, but stopped short of proselyte conversion. In, in short, as we read through the New Testament and get the viewpoint of the um, uh, Messianic leadership in Ju- uh, Jerusalem, right, G- Peter, James, John, and people like that, we begin to realize that, as I say in my commentary, this proselyte program was wrong flat out wrong why was it so wrong why was it so disruptive on the surface it seems like it solves the problem solves the gentile problem especially of paganism and um, you know pollution as it were uh, defilement um, you know the unclean problem if everybody just turns into a Jew, well then, from the surface level, it seems like every guy is going to be keeping the same laws. The Torah is applicable to everybody because everybody's Jewish. Nobody has to worry about unclean food anymore, buying food that was in the marketplace, um, you know, eating unkosher foods, uh, visiting unkosher places where you could become spiritually defiled. Um, you know, it seems to solve all of the issues for the communities, right? At the surface level, that seems like a solution. And indeed, many of the Messianic leaders, even in Paul's day, like some of the religious Pharisees in Acts chapter 15, um, even the Messianic Pharisees, the believing Pharisees, believed that this was the right program, right? Read Acts chapter 15, first few verses. Um, they, they believed that it was necessary for Gentiles to convert and to take on the law of Moses in their expression of their faithfulness and loyalty to Torah, uh, loyalty to the covenant, what we call covenantal nomism. However, however, as we dig a little bit deeper into the promises that God gave to Israel through the prophets, as is now being revealed to the apostles, we begin to realize that God never wanted all of Abraham's children to be Jewish. Let me pause and let that sink in. Abraham's family, from the word go, has always been um, envisioned to be a bouquet of native-born sons of Jacob along with those from the nations who are being drawn into the light and the truth of God and um, uh, leaving their paganism behind but not leaving their ethnicity behind. They bring to Abraham's family their ethnic identity and thus Abraham's family becomes a bouquet like a like a like a bouquet of flowers it becomes a bouquet of both Jews and Gentiles in the family of God and that is the gospel at its heart that's the pure um, uh, paradigm and picture that Paul recognized as he read through his Tanakh again with eyes opened by Messiah he realized that the Paul the 
uh, proselyte policies were wrong-headed. They were going in the wrong direction. So I say this was wrong. What's so wrong about them, by the way, at, at one level, there's so many things I could talk about. Go back and um, study my Galatians commentary, and you'll see where I hi uh, highlight this, the poison of the ethnocentric Jewish exclusive perspective. But one of the reasons why this is wrong is because on the face of it, um, of the surface level, it, um, in fact, even at the even deeper than the surface level, uh, the proselyte program assumes that the Torah was given to Israel, Jewish Israel only, and that it applies to Jewish Israel only. Meaning, the promises of God, the protection of God, the purposes of God, the blessings of God, the presence of God, the recognition of the righteous standard of God, all of that is a Jewish-only program. And thus, Gentiles have no part and parcel in it. And thus, in a word, salvation is a Jewish-only concept. That's what's so wrong about the proselyte program. It, it reduces all, of, all that's good in God to being Jewish-only. And that is the poison of ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. That's the problem. Where do the Gentiles fit in? There's no place for them if that is really the truth of the gospel. Jesus died for Jews only. We know that can't be the case, right? We know that that's false. And so, uh, and that's why it upset Paul so, so, um, heatedly uh, whenever he encountered this proselyte program uh, being pushed uh, in first century Israel. So let's continue my commentary. God commanded Israel to practice communal ritual purity. Yes, this is true. The practical outworking of the oral Torah and rabbinic laws of purity, however, uh, in Paul's day, raised a strong wall of jealousy, shared resentment, and separation uh, between Jews in Israel and the Gentiles outside of Israel, even if this was not the original intent. Even if the Jewish leaders didn't intend to make the Gentiles so jealous and upset with their Jewish-only policies, this was the practical outworking of the oral traditions. And unfortunately, it became the problem in and of itself. Thus, I say in my commentary... Sorry, I didn't mean to highlight all of that. The dividing wall of hostility in Ephesians 2.14 was the vile man-made social class caste system set in place by oral Torah and Jewish leaders seeking to keep a, a social and religious distance between Jews and Gentiles. Jewish religious pride and... Um, Gentile resentment of that pride fostered the shared social hostility. Jesus came to establish once and for all that Jews and Gentiles in him constituted a spiritual Israel within national Israel. So we got the Israel within Israel that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9, um, two places there, and also in Romans chapter 11, the grafted in Gentiles being brought into, grafted into what? Grafted into the family of Abraham, grafted into God's family, grafted into the people of Israel, even at the Israel level, but at the remnant identifier. So Gentiles are brought into the family of Abraham, but they don't automatically become Jews. That's the issue at stake here. That's how Paul understood this, um, uh, what we might call the enlargement of the Abrahamic family and the enlargement of the, um, the olive tree of God, the olive tree of Israel. Abraham's family was growing and it was growing in leaps and bounds thanks to the Holy Spirit, Baruch Hashem. Paul was very excited to see the Gentiles coming in to the truth of who they are in Messiah, the bringing in of the um, body of Messiah and enlarging it so that we had room for um, the Gentiles at the table, at, at, at sitting at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, 
they didn't have to leave their ethnicity behind like the Jewish religious leaders in Paul's day were teaching. The proselyte program was wrong. It was wrong. It was wrong. The remnant of Israel is the identifier that, that the Gentiles need to take on and accept. They are part of Israel at the remnant level. You can even call them spiritual Israel if you want to use that identifier. I'm fine with that. Um, but they are not Jewish. That's where Paul was drawing his line in the sand. Let's not turn them into Jews. Give them God's promises? Yes. Give them Messiah? Absolutely. Fill with the Holy Spirit? Undoubtedly. Giving them Torah? You bet. Giving them Jewish identification? No, no, and no. In the remnant, Jews and Gentile believers were equal, equal as Jews and Gentiles, something Paul states later in Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. So that's the context, and that's the force of the um, um, uh, the peace that's going to unify us, recognizing in our communities, both in Paul's day and in today's communities, that we are one in Messiah without erasing our distinctives. We are Jew, we are Gentile, and we both have equal claim to the words and the ways of God, which would include everything from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The love letter that God gave to us, right, the Bible, applies equally to Jew and Gentile, just like the gospel contained therein and the power of the Holy Spirit to live it out equally applies to Jew and Gentile, right? We wouldn't teach that the Holy Spirit's only for Gentiles or only for Jews. We wouldn't teach that the gospel of Jesus, right, that he can save someone is only for Gentiles or only for Jews. Then why would we teach that the Torah is only for Gentiles or only for Jews? Of course, by today's standards, most people, Jew and Gentile, are misunderstanding the application of Torah. Most people think that the Torah is a Jewish-only document. The Jewish people teach it today. The Gentile church believes that same lie, and Paul is upset at the whole matter. <laughs> All right, let's read um, the, those same three verses, of, or two or three. Let me see how many are there. Um, Ephesians 14 and 15, I paraphrased them in my commentary. Uh, here's how I, uh, here's my paraphrase. For he himself is our peace, who has made both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah into fellow citizens with one another and both into members of Israel, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility created by the class caste system by abolishing the laws of oral commandments found in man-made dogma that he might create in himself one new redeemed humanity in place of the fractured and separated two, so making peace. End of quote. And that's the end of the excursus uh, to this particular commentary as well. And that's where I'm going to bring this part of my study to a close. Um, we'll pick up some conclusions starting next week with uh, section number 16, like you can see on my screen right now. But what I'm going to do for the YouTube crowd is play the short five-minute video that was uh, meant to be watched in conjunction with this particular excursus on Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 on the One New Man. So for those of you in my YouTube channel and those of you on my uh, iTunes crowd, uh, you're going to be treated to the video right now. And then after the video, we'll turn to um, the Exploring the Shema study.
Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah Teacher Ariel, where every few days we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture that I find very fascinating and important for us to consider as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Let's talk about Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. Let's read the ESV English and then the SBLGNT Greek. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The Greek says, Autoskar esten he erene hemon ho poiesas ta amphotera hen kai ta mesotoikan tu fragmu lusas. Tain echthron en te sarki autu, tan naman ton entalon, en dogmasen katergesas, hina tus duo katise en hauto, es hena kainan anthropon poion erenein. I will start with Ephesians 2.14 to build context and then work towards Ephesians 2.15. It is commonly taught that the dividing wall of hostility being broken down was the law of Moses, the Torah. In my study and teaching of the Bible, I firmly maintain that the barrier being destroyed cannot possibly be the Torah because the Torah never commanded a dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. The dividing wall of hostility in Ephesians 2.14 was the vile, man-made social class caste system set in place by oral Torah and Jewish leaders seeking to keep a social and religious difference between Jews and Gentiles. Religious Jewish pride and Gentile resentment of that pride fostered the shared social hostility. Jesus came to establish once and for all that Jews and Gentiles in him constituted a spiritual Israel within national Israel. Read Romans 9, 6 through 8, 9, 23, and 24, and Romans 11, 1 through 7. The remnant of Israel is this spiritual Israel within national Israel. In the remnant, Jews and Gentile believers were equal, something Paul states later in Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. Using the whole context of Ephesians 2 to bolster my argument, I would paraphrase Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 thusly. For he himself is our peace, who has made both Jews and Gentiles in Messiah into fellow citizens with one another, and both into members of Israel, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility created by the class caste system by abolishing the laws of oral commandments found in man-made dogma that he might create in himself one new redeemed humanity in place of the fractured and separated two, so making peace. And that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and let's take some time and work our way through the study. Uh, we are in, uh, let's just scroll down through the table of contents, we are in paper three of three, who or what is the Holy Spirit, and we are in... Um, we're in the second section. Uh, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Spirit of God versus the Spirit of Christ versus the Holy Spirit. So let me kick on, click on that. And two weeks ago, we talked about how that the Bible is really presenting us with this idea that when we 
open up the pages of God's Word, we're encountered with, we encounter God. We encounter God, we encounter His Spirit, right? The first few verses in Genesis that we're actually going to read in our liturgy tonight. God presents Himself to us. He reveals Himself to us. He begins to show Himself to us one piece at a time, right? A little bit at a time. And so God's very Spirit is His Holy Spirit. And yet, at the same time, because of the progressive nature of the Bible, as I pick up my commentary right here, we begin to realize that there's more to God than what we, um, more to God than meets the eye. Let's pick up what I say in my commentary. And this is where I uh, left off two weeks ago. At the same time, that we read about God and God being a spirit, yet at the same time, given what has been revealed through the progressive nature of the Bible as a whole, particularly within the apostolic scriptures part of God's word, right, the New Testament, I firmly believe that we must honestly admit that there's definitely language in this New Testament section of our Bibles that conveys the truth of a spirit being that's described at times using masculine personal pronouns along with personal attributes and character traits that equate him, the spirit, with acceptable definitions of personhood, making it impossible to identify the spirit being as anything other than one of what theologians have come to refer to as one of the persons of the triune Godhead. And you have to remember, God the Father is also a spirit being, right? Like the Holy Spirit, he's pure spirit. Whereas comparatively, Yeshua the Messiah is a human being. Now this is really challenging to us because in when what we call theophany, like we see in the Old Testament, God shows up. That's the word I was looking for last week that I was struggling with when I was saying theophany, Christophany. Um, the the manifestation of God in in tangible form, a theophany, where it's the invisible presence of God, but one of our five senses is registering it, usually using our eyes or our ears, right? So we see something, a light, or we see a flame, or a pillar of cloud, or or a man, something that looks like a, a bright shining man, right? A glowing a person. Or, um, or we hear a, a, a mighty rushing wind or something like that. These manifestations of the invisible God are known as theophanies. When we're talking about the pre-incarnate Messiah, the eternal word of God, who eventually would come to earth in the person of Messiah Yeshua and make his presence dwelt as a person, a human being. But prior to that, when we see this this second person of the Trinity of the Godhead showing up in the Old Testament, like the angel of the Lord, the um, the captain of heaven's host, right? The Malach Adonai or Adonai Tzvaot or um, something like that. The, the 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 word of the Lord that was showing up in the Targums, uh, what Judaism was recognizing as the very presence of God up close and personal. The Memra in the Aramaic, um, or Metatron, if you want to get into the mystical Zohar writings and things like that. This is what we would call a Christophany. So when we read to the Bible verses that God is invisible and he can't be seen, God himself says that no one can see my face and live. And John echoes this fact that no one has ever seen God, right? God is invisible. He lives in unapproach- dwells in unapproachable light, we read in the New Testament. I think that's somewhere in either Peter or in Timothy. 
But either way, so it's Paul's writing or Peter writing. Either way, God is invisible. He can't be seen. That means that all of the theophanies and the Christophanies either are just that. They're, they're manifestations of either God or the Messiah bringing God's presence to us in the person of Messiah. So, for instance, in Exodus chapter 24, Moses... Uh, and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and did what? They saw God and they had a meal with God. What's going on? Well, if God's invisible, they either saw a theophany or a Christophany. It's one or the other. I'm of the impression that they saw, um, uh, it's kind of an overlap, right? It's not a hard line between one or the other because it says they saw God. Um, so we would say that was a theophany, I suppose. It wasn't a vision, right? Like Isaiah, uh, uh, I think it was more of a vision, right? Isaiah chapter 6, you know, in the in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Was that a vision? Could be. Uh, could be that Isaiah actually saw God. It's probably likely that he saw Messiah, Christophany, because uh, later on in the book of Luke, I think, it talks about that um, Isaiah saw Messiah there. So all of this, how does this relate to our understanding of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is pure spirit, just like God is a spirit. And yet, you know, we don't have any theophanies of the Holy Spirit. We don't have any any Christophanies, as it were, of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't seem to uh, appear to us in, um, well, not as a theophany of God, if you call the the the, the what we call the, the the dove coming down on Yeshua in in the Gospels, the you know um, when Yeshua was being baptized by John, if you want to call that a, a theophany of the Holy Spirit, right? I suppose that would count. Or the the mighty presence of the Holy Spirit um, falling on the disciples in Acts chapter two with not just the sound of the wind, but the visible presence of the tongues of fire alighting on the disciples. If you want to call that a theophany of the Holy Spirit, um, I suppose that would work as well. But generally speaking, the Spirit of God is invisible, just like God is invisible. In other words, based on the testimony of the Apostolic Scriptures, it would be intellectually dishonest to call this Spirit being an it, uh, because the Holy Spirit has personality. We're going to read over and over again that um, he can be uh, grieved. He can be lied to. Uh, he has decision-making powers, right? He can he can express his own will. Last time I checked, these are qualities of personality, right? I've, I mean, we, uh, most of us who are Trinitarians are fond of using the example of the fact that electricity as a power, as pure power, right, an energy force, doesn't enjoy the qualities of personality, right? The electricity in my wall can neither speak nor express its will. It cannot be offended. I can't hurt its feelings, right? I can't have a, um, a relationship with the electricity in my wall. Um, I can't lie to it. Uh, it's an impersonal force, to be reckoned with, right? I don't want to stick my fingers in the socket. That's a bad thing to do. Most definitely, I'm going to feel the effects of and the force of the of the electricity then, right? It's going to talk to me. Yeah, you bet. But it's not going to be through intelligent speech, the way the Holy Spirit can and does. Likewise, we could, I like use the example of my um, my uh, my MacBook Air here that I'm looking at, my, my laptop. Um, it's a great machine, great piece of uh, technology when it works, right? And so far, it's been working fine since I purchased it. Um, but 
it can't express its will. It can't talk to me. I've never heard it speak to me unless I push a button and tell it to dictate something. Um, it can't express its will. It can't tell me that it loves me or anything. I don't know if it loves me. You know, I love it, <laughs> not in the wrong way, but you know, I appreciate it that, that that it as a piece of technology. But you guys understand the point I'm trying to make. It is a it's a cold piece of of um of uh, technology, right? When it works, it's great, but I can't have a relationship with it. Uh, it can't express its own will. Um, I can't lie to it. You know, I can't um, um, uh, expect it to convey its its feelings towards me and things like that. The Holy Spirit is not like any of that. So we should just begin to understand that the Holy Spirit's not an it. And the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force of God like the Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, uh, Christadelphians and Iglesia ni Cristo and and um, uh, more uh, uh, Mormons and and Unitarians like to teach us. So going on my uh, uh, my commentary again, I say God Himself is a spirit, and yet despite the fact that we cannot prove as an is um, His. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, I guess I skipped a, a sentence. Yeah, let's start right there. After all, God himself is a spirit, and yet despite the fact that we cannot prove his anatomy with empirical evidence, right? We can't look at God and say, well, we know he's a he, we know he's a she, you know, look at his body, look at his look at his features. We don't know all that, right? Like we can look at a man and know he's a male based on his anatomy. We look at a female, know, look at a woman, know she's a female based on anatomy. We can know this by empirical evidence, right? We can see, we can test, we can measure. We know um, with empirical proofs who are males and who are females for the most part in the world today. But with God, we can't do that. Um, God himself, I say in my commentary, he chooses to identify himself to mankind as a he, not as an it, and most definitely not as a she. Understand what I mean there? Uh, when you read through the Tanakh, God, who is a spirit, nevertheless uses personal pronouns in the masculine. Over and over again, like I mentioned in my, uh, who is God speaking with the angels in Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image, right? Vayomer Elohim, na'ase butsalmenu kidmutenu. Um, and God said, Vayomer, and he said in the singular masculine Elohim, even though Elohim is a plural. Who's the he? The he is Elohim. So even though God is a spirit, he's expressing himself in personal pronouns that are masculine. And he, Elohim, by Yomer Elohim, and God said, Naase, let us make man. I skipped a word there. Naase Adam Betzalmenu Kibutenu. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God is not a she. He's a he, according to God's own self-revelation. Anyone reading the Bible with a moderate amount of comprehension can plainly see that the person of the Ruach HaKodesh most definitely displays traits akin to personality. Right? We talked about uh, the fact that the Holy Spirit expresses his will. He can be lied to. He can be grieved. Um, uh, and he can, we can have fellowship with him and things like that. Um, to be sure, the spirit person that we read about in the latter parts of our Bible enjoys most of the same personhood attributes that we humans possess, right? As I've been uh, uh, saying all along, he can be grieved, he can be lied to, he can be resisted, and he has his own will, etc., etc. So, um, unlike the Holy Spirit that shows up in the um, New World Translations that the Jehovah's Witnesses carry that I quoted last week, unlike the God of the Unitarians, Christians, the Christadelphians, the Iglesia ni Cristo, the um, 
um, um, who are some of the, the like I said, the, the, the Mormon Christians, um, the unlike that Holy Spirit, surely an impersonal force like electricity cannot be grieved or lied to. So the Holy Spirit of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of the Bible, is is pure person. He's the very person of God. He's the third person of the Trinity. He is recognized as full deity, right? We, we're going to see later on in my study how he actually has creative powers. Um, he has the same powers as God. He enjoys the same eternal qualities that God enjoys and things like that. Um, and as we read the Bible and take it at face value, that's why I say an impersonal force like electricity can't be grieved or lied to, nor is it ordinary to describe humans as capable of having fellowship with an impersonal force of power. That's just not the normal way that we talk about things like electricity. Yet, I say in my commentary... Sorry about that. Yet, the Bible definitely states that we can and do have fellowship with the Ruach HaKodesh. The Holy Spirit can be um, personal with our very own personal spirit. We have personality as humans. And whether you want to say we're uh, bipart or tripart, right? Three, per- three parts to us, two parts to us, whatever. Body, soul, spirit, or just body and spirit or soul or something like that. Nevertheless, I have personality. You can grieve me. You can wound me. I can be hurt. I can be offended. Um, I can be humored. Um, you can lie to me. You can deceive me. Uh, on the flip side, I hope you don't lie to me. You can encourage me. You can bless me. You can um, tell me the truth. Uh, you can have a relationship with me. You can speak with me. You, as a human being, can express your wills and desires to me as a human being. And I, as a human being, can reciprocate. We can have a shared relationship with one another, right? And it can be a vibrant relationship one with another. Why? Because we both are persons. We both have personality. We have character, things like that. The Holy Spirit enjoys all of those same qualities, even though he's non-corporeal. He doesn't have a physical body. Nevertheless, the way he's described in the Bible is with the same qualities of personality that humans enjoy, right? He's not an impersonal force. He's not an object. He's not an it. Just get that out of your head. In fact, even to take our analogy a bit further, animals or insects are in many ways qualified as it, right? We can think of dogs as he and she and cats as he and she, and there's nothing wrong with that. We can indeed have relationships with our pets, although the communication is a bit different, right? They can't express their will to us the same way that humans do, not as clearly. They can express their emotions. They can express their um, hurt, uh, their anguish, their their um, you know their distress, uh, their pain. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, we can't have the exact same relationship with our pets that we can have with one another as humans. There are limitations to the way that animals and insects. I don't even think I don't know if insects can be qualified, but you understand what I mean by the animal world, the insect world, things like that. In my analogy here, it is clearly understood from our perspective as humans that there are limitations to describing pets and insects in the terms of personality. You understand what I mean? They they kind of they kind of cross over into the lines of it, right? Um, I see a spider in my house, and I don't say to my wife, uh, 
quick, quick, get something to kill her or to kill him. I don't usually describe insects that way. I, I usually say, quick, get something to kill it, right? Uh, even though I would describe a cat if we had one or a dog if we had one as a he or a she. Um, nevertheless, usually insects fall into the category of it. Well, it is so um, uh, grievous when I hear people talk about the Holy Spirit as an it. I know grammatically we can say that the Holy Spirit is it using grammar, but um, personality-wise, it's just not right. I mean, I don't describe people in terms of it, right? I don't describe my wife as it, right? Go home and go go and see if my, see if it's okay, speaking to someone to go check on my wife. Go see if it's okay, right? We had a baby, and it was five pounds and three ounces. I don't know if that's a big baby or a small baby. I'm just making up some numbers. We don't usually describe babies that way, right? We describe he or she, usually. So you guys understand the point I'm making. I don't have to make this uh, too complicated um, an issue. And I think what I'll do is I'll stop right there in my commentary um, uh, so I can leave room in our study for the uh, for the uh, the other video that we're going to be watching. So I'll keep working our way down through this Holy Spirit study. But in the end, I think you guys are catching the, the gist of this as we challenge ourselves with what the Bible has to say. I think, in closing to this part of my study, I think what trips a lot of people up, like the um, Unitarian Christians and the other people groups that I keep naming, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the Christadelphians, the Glazy Christo, uh, and these other um, uh, um, people groups, Christadelphians, and stuff like that, um, the, and if you've never heard of all those groups, just do a Google search for um, Unitarian Christians or non-Trinitarian Christian groups, and you'll see who I'm talking about. I think what trips most of them up when they're reading through the Bible is that they don't see the larger picture. It's like the kind of the whole example of getting lost in the forest for the trees, right? You can't see the forest for the trees. You're right in the middle of a forest, and because you're up close and personal with, the, with a tree one-on-one, -on -one, you can't see the rest of the forest. You can't get that snapshot view or the elevated view that you could get if you were in a helicopter or an airplane at, at higher uh, altitude. You need to kind of zoom out if you're using the Google Maps um, example all over again. When you're looking at the Bible, you need to keep the whole Bible in view from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And when we're talking about examining God, we have to take into account all of the places where the qualities and character traits of God are being described or being examined. And that's why we cannot describe the Holy Spirit as an it. Yeshua described the Holy Spirit using personal pronouns. We looked at that last week. Um, and so uh, it's disingenuous to the Bible um, to describe the Holy Spirit as an it, uh, an impersonal, perso impersonal force of power, uh, or simply to uh, uh, collapse him into the person of God without giving him a distinct personhood, because there are places where we see God sending his spirit. So that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to our liturgy and uh, wind down in our study tonight. I won't wax long, um, but I will use this liturgy uh, two times in a row. What we're going to be looking at by way of liturgy is Deuteronomy 34 verses, uh, um, let's see, verses 10 through 12, and then Genesis verses 1 through 3. We've read this in the past. What we do during this time of year is cycle our Torah 
um, scrolls over from Genesis back around again to Deuteronomy, uh, back around to, um, I'm sorry to say that one more time. We cycle our Torah scroll from Deuteronomy back around over to Genesis. We flip the Bible from one end to the other. For a Torah scroll, this would involve re-rolling it from Genesis all, from Deuteronomy all the way back over to Genesis, which takes quite a while because you don't want to damage the scroll, especially if it's an ancient scroll. Uh, precious thing. So we're going to kind of imitate that quality in our uh, liturgy. Let me read Deuteronomy 34, verse, the last three verses, and I'll flip my Bible over and read Genesis, the first three chapters, uh, the first three verses um, for us in our liturgy. I'm only going to read the English tonight. Next week, I'll pick up the uh, Hebrew and the uh, of, of the same uh, sections. And then we are going to read a passage out of Ephesians for the Greek part uh, well, not the Greek tonight, but you guys understand. So Deuteronomy 34, starting right there on that side of the screen. For those of you who are with me in the live class, you can see my screen. Um, Deuteronomy 34, starting in verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Verse 11. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. And verse 12, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And that's it for Deuteronomy. Let's turn immediately over to Genesis and read the first three verses right there. Starting right there, for those of you who are with me in the live class. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, verse 1. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 2, and verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That'll do it for our reading from the uh, Tanakh, from the Old Testament. Let's turn to the Apostolic Scriptures and read those verses that we studied in the Romans uh, study, uh, where we looked at Ephesians 2, verses 18, 19, and... How far do I want to go? Um, you should probably... Um, starting in verse 14 and working way down through verse... Let's see. How far do I want to read? Maybe through at least through verse um, 14, 15, and... 16. Let's start right there. We might read, let's see. Yeah, let's read those three. 14, 15, 16. So starting right there on that side of the page, Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's watch the short little video. Uh, the video is on the uh, topic of um, the, uh, 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 the fall feast, the highlights from Shmini Atzeret, um, the uh, eighth day of assembly, where it's talking about rejoicing in the Torah, rejoicing in the festivities of God giving the law to us. That'll be the short little video, and after the video's over, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go.
since this is one of the Mikra A Kodesh, let me read my theme verse that I've been utilizing for this series. This is Leviticus 23, verses 1 and 2, which read, Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as holy convocations, are my designated times. Let me also read the Hebrew for you as well. Vaidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor, daber el bnei Yisrael vaamarta alehim, moade Adonai asher tikroo otam mikra e kodesh elehim moadai. These are the festivals that we have been studying uh, throughout the year. These are the feasts of the Lord, and. Um, the seventh one on the list is uh, Sukkot, which is the festival of tabernacles, or the festival of uh, ingathering, of which um, the Torah tells us that for this last festival, the number seventh festival, that we uh, celebrate for, well, it's a seven-day festival with a celebration on the first day, and then there's this eighth day of assembly that gets tacked on after the seven-day celebration. Thus, the eighth day, in one sense, is its own celebration, but in another sense, it is a part of Sukkot, as it is the eighth day that's tacked on to it. Um, let's read through our liturgy for tonight. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. This is our familiar passage where God promises to uh, one day redeem them as a corporate group. This doesn't mean that redemption hasn't and doesn't take place on an individual level. It most certainly does. And it has been ongoing as far as on a personal level ever since Israel was a nation. Ever since there was a people called Israel, ever since there was really humans, a new covenant is something that's available. It's not time-bound. It's not locked into a time or a dispensation. At least, that's the way I understand Scripture. Um, so let's read about what God is going to do to Israel corporately one day. Let's start in verse 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep mine ordinances and do them. Okay, so then let's keep going with the liturgy. Let's, let's look at the Hebrew real quick. Verse uh, 26, Verse 27, And then verse 28, the final pasik, the final verse. Uh, and you shall be unto me, my people. And I am, will be, and I, uh, and I will be, unto you, the people, Elohim, a God to you, or, or your God, literally. So, or unto you, you as a God. All right, and that'll be our liturgy from the Tanakh. Let's turn now to the uh, Apostolic Scriptures, the book of Galatians, chapter 5. And keep in mind, as we're reading through the book of Galatians, that Ezekiel promised that God said he'll put a new heart with them then, 
and a new spirit he'll put within you. So we got a new heart and a new spirit. And then uh, we're going to talk about how this heart transplant and the spirit and filling gives national Israel the ability to walk in God's statutes and keep his ordinances and do them. These are features that Israel has been uh, unable to do historically as a corporate people in the in the sense that God counts them as as behaviorally righteous in the truest sense of the word verse 22 but the fruit of the spirit right these are the verses that we memorize as as uh, Bible students growing up going you know going attending Sunday school the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness verse 23 gentleness self-control you know all those nine there against such things there is no law the, the, the Torah isn't is in opposition, right? There's not a rivalry going on between the law and the fruit of the Spirit. Rather, I think what the verse is trying to say in this most natural sense is that Paul knows that as a Spirit-led believer, whether Jew or Gentile, the Torah actually is in agreement with the fruit of the Spirit. And why would Paul think that? Because again, what we just read in, in Ezekiel, the, the walking in the statutes and keeping the ordinances and doing them is a, a, an indicator of fruit. It's and We can actually even identify it as fruit, the fruit of naturally being filled with the Spirit of God and having the new heart and spirit that God himself has supplied. So if God is the one that supplies the new heart and the new spirit, well then the fruit that we can expect from such a change in status is the fruit of walking in the the ways of God, keeping the ordinance of God, doing them. That's all part of the fruit, what we call the sanctification. It's it's a result of what God is doing on the inside. It's not fruit that we can produce on our own. And so the fruit of the Spirit includes uh, love for God, love for one's neighbor, keeping the Torah the way God designed it to be kept. And so that's why Paul can say that when when he's naming off these nine fruits of the Spirit or the, the ninefold aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, that there is no law that stands in op- opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. Against such things there is no law, right? Okay, and then in verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, this is a really neat verse, if we live by the Spirit or if we are brought to life by the Spirit, we can either look at this as a subjective or an objective. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us, verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Starting in verse 22 in the Greek here, Halt de carpas tu penumatas, but the fruit of the Spirit, Esten, is, and now Paul lists the nine that we're familiar with agape, chara, irene, macrothumia, crestates, agotusune, pistis, and then starting in verse 23, prautes, toyuton, uk esten, namas, right? Against such things there is no namas, no law. And then verse 24, Hoi de tu Christu Yesu, ten sarake estarusen, suntois patemasen, kai teis epitemias. And then verse 25, E zomen penumati, penumati kai stechumen. If we live by the Spirit, then we need to walk by the Spirit. And then the final passage, verse 26, Me genomatha kenadaxoi alelus, 
Procaluminoi Alelois Fatantuntis. And uh, this uh, is the final uh, warning against uh, those who want to continue to gratify the, the desires of flesh and live the old lifestyle. Um, if, if that's the way you're going to live, you're going to be boastful and you're going to provoke one another and you'll you'll envy one another. And that's, that's the old nature that's just uh, uh, acting out. So don't live that way. And that'll do it for the short little video. Let's close in prayer. Ab, I bless your name. And I'm so blessed to have a community of faithful students who join me week after week for these live studies. I pray that you'll continue to protect them and bless them and raise them up right where they're at. I pray that you'll continue to give us a heart to know you, to love you, and to serve you, and to press in to your word so that we can be faithful to you, so that we can be blessed by you. Lord, continue to strengthen our communities. We pray a special blessing and prayer for Beth Elgi Bohr's community as they're suffering from COVID right now. We pray that you'll continue to heal them and raise them up and strengthen them to be a voice in this in this uh in this uh world today and in, in communities like theirs around the world. We don't just pray for BEG, Lord. We pray for the, the body of Messiah at large. We need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and in Messiah and to um, get our focus back on who Yeshua is, grounded in the Lord, grounded and raised up in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can be vibrant communities, so that we can make an impact in the world around us, so that we can, we, we can have a, a witness when we share our testimonies, so that our words don't fall on deaf ears, so that our prayers are answered so that we can receive healing as a people of God. Continue to go with us, Lord, this week, um, giving us the comfort and the joy of the Holy Spirit and uh, helping us to uh, continue to um, share uh, the strength and joy of the Lord with those friends and family members and co-workers and people that we might meet on an everyday basis. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 